Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Megan Cochran. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Vani Kant Barua to discuss his book, Economics, Religion, and Happiness. Professor Barua holds the chair in applied economics at the University of Ulster and is a member of the Royal Irish Academy. Professor Barua, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. I found your book compelling for the way that you analyze aspects of happiness. You know, in the United States, We talk a lot about happiness. It's in our Declaration of Independence, and there are many courses, including university-level courses, and how-to books about how to achieve and sustain happiness. The main narrative of most of these is that we can control our happiness, at least in a relative sense. If we just do a handful of things like meditate, write in a journal, do physical exercise, maintain social connections. These guides provide concrete suggestions like that for how to improve our level of happiness in a day-to-day way. However, the flip side of that narrative is that it gives the impression that we can control our happiness, even to some extent that any unhappiness that we do feel might be our own fault or that we're not doing those things well enough or often enough. The reality I think, and I think your book also sort of gets to this, is that while it's true that we can do a lot of things to improve our relative happiness, it's also true that there are many factors that are out of our control. One of the many things that interested me about your book is that you took a very different approach and you looked at some of these factors over which we have less control or where the impact on happiness is contingent on circumstances and context like religion, income, and job satisfaction. So I want to come back to those things individually later in the discussion, Um, but let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your background and how you came to write this book. Okay, so I'm an economist. I was born in India, and um, I came to Britain many years ago as a PhD student, Um, and I just stayed on. And ultimately, I ended up as a professor of economics. I've always been interested in happiness. And the approach that I've always taken is the conventional route that you suggested. That happiness depends upon factors within our control. It depends upon marriage, children, health, income, neighborhood. You could list a litany of items, and all these combine or coalesce to provide us with a certain level of happiness. And this also mirrors what the happiness literature, the popular literature, tries to do. It tells us in order to be happy, you should do certain things, or you should refrain from doing certain other things. And if you manage to do these things, you will be happy, or at least you'll come closer to happiness than you would be if you did the opposite. 
So, for example, someone suggests that um, you should find something which really absorbs you. You know, it's being in the flow. And if you can find a flow state, some activity which puts you in a flow state, then you're closer to happiness. Others say you should lead a life of pleasure plus purpose. And if you can find the right combination of pleasure and purpose, then you might end up happy. So there are various, if you like, prescriptions, both in the popular literature and in the academic literature for happiness. But they all depend upon yourself and your own circumstances. And they're quite independent of what others are trying to do. But as an economist, I'm also interested in externalities. Externalities means I do something, but it impacts on you, either positively or negatively. And you do something which impacts on me, either positively or negatively. And while I was thinking about the relationship between um, happiness and externalities, it was an idea floating in my mind. I was reminded of Sartre's famous aphorism, Hell is Other People. And, you know, the story is that a man dies and then finds himself in a room with three other people. And there's an attendant. And the attendant says, uh, the man asks the attendant, where am I? And the, man, the attendant says, you're in hell. Hell, where's the fire? Where's the brimstone? Where the, where are the torture instruments? And the attendant says, there are none. Hell is other people. <laughs> and... This is the point that in some ways other people have the capacity of making life hell for us or making life pleasant, but also often making life hell for us. So how does this happen? Um, it happens through this concept of tolerance. If I tolerate something that you're doing, it implies two things. One is I somehow disapprove of what you're doing. I don't like it. But the other is that I don't do anything to stop you from doing it, either or verbally or physically. And that is tolerance. I put up with your behavior. But why do I do that? Either I have some awareness of myself and I impose some restriction on myself, or there are some socially imposed restrictions. It's not right to say some things. It's not right to do some things. So there are socially accepted norms of behavior. Or the state imposes certain sanctions. If you try and interfere with this person's life, you will be punished in a particular way. You will go to jail, you will pay a fine, blah, blah, blah. So all this makes me re refrain from interfering with what you're doing. And this is what goes under the rubric of tolerance. I don't like what you're doing, but I'm not going to do anything to stop you from doing it. Right. Now, very often, <laughs> tolerance, the crux of the book is that tolerance can morph into intolerance. And very often, it morphs into intolerance because I take my lead from something society is doing. And something that society is doing takes its lead from public policy. If public policy becomes more relaxed towards 
making racist remarks or sexist remarks. Then society sanctions these kinds of remarks and it filters down on me and my restrictions or constraints that I place upon myself, they get eroded. And suddenly I find I'm no longer the tolerant person I once was, I'm intolerant. And I'm intolerant by not just disapproving of what you're doing, but I actively take steps to uh, prevent you from doing it. And we see this a lot with religion. Um, and I take a number of case studies, um, whether you're looking at Myanmar, Buddhists versus Muslims, you're looking at Sri Lanka, again, Buddhists versus Muslims, you're looking at India, uh, Hindus versus Muslims. <clears throat> there is a sense in which the barriers of tolerance have broken down and people feel now that it is okay to voice one's discontent and not just voice one's discontent, but to translate this discontent into physical acts which actively harm people who are doing something that you disapprove of. So that sense is the heart of the book, that it lies with tolerance morphing into intolerance because of some external change which leads to a societal change which in turn leads to a change in the individual. So maybe I've talked around. No, no, it's fascinating. So let's um, let's let's come back, and I'd like for you to talk about how you talk, what what you mean when you say happy, when you say happiness. What does that mean? How should our listeners understand this concept of of happiness at its most basic thing, and then um, and then also in relationship to the tolerance concept that you were just explaining. You talked about some objective and subjective measures of happiness, and I, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about that. So, in some ways, happiness is like trying to describe an elephant or describe a rhinoceros. It's very difficult to describe it, but if you see an elephant, you'll know you've seen an elephant. And if you've seen a rhinoceros, you'll know you've seen a rhinoceros. And in some ways, if you are happy, you'll know you're happy. And if you aren't happy, you'll know you're unhappy because that's the way surveys asked people, um, how would you rate your happiness on a particular scale and either very unhappy or very happy. Now, what can ask philosophical questions as to what exactly do they mean? Well, certainly one can ask these questions, but the point is, can a person recognize he's happy when he or she is happy or recognize that they are unhappy when they, they are unhappy. So my view in this book is I'm not going to tell you what constitutes your happiness. Suffice it for me to say if you are moderately happy then I take it you're moderately happy. And if you are very happy I take it you're very happy. Um, so you accept the, the ratings that people give themselves I accept the in these surveys. I see. And okay. a parallel concept with that of in happiness is the question of life evaluation. So happiness is an emotional response. It is 
as we are talking, are you happy or are you unhappy? That's one. Life satisfaction is more evaluative. It is, you evaluate your life and, you know, you weigh up all your triumphs and disasters, your wins, your losses, and you come up with a, a summary feeling, yes, I have a high degree of self-satisfaction. I may have been divorced, but I raised some very good children, I had a good career. Um, so the pluses, the minuses, maybe they balance out and there's a surplus left, so I have life satisfaction. Or I had such an awful life, everything, you know, I, I intended doing things, they didn't work out, and my life satisfaction is low. But again, these evaluative things, I have to accept how you evaluate your life. If you say you're satisfied with your life, who am I to say no? Absolutely. <laughs> you say, I'm very sad, I'm dissatisfied with my life. You know, I can't possibly contradict you. So, you know, I, that's, you know, that's uh, the starting point, that I take happiness as, as defined. Self-defined. So let's let's go back to religion for a moment. You brought it up before, and I found this aspect of the book absolutely riveting. Um, we you mentioned, and I have also read in the popular news media that people who identify as religious often report very high levels of happiness. And in your book, you do discuss this, but you also talk about a very different kind of impact that being religious can have as a source of conflict, um, even hatred and violence. You talked about this a little bit earlier in the context of tolerance and intolerance. Uh, but I think some of our readers, and I as well, um, have the sense that, you know, what are, how are you, how do, how do we put that into real terms to understand what's really going on for people? Um, and what did you learn in your research about the impact of religion on happiness more broadly? Okay. If religion was purely a private matter, um, I have no doubt that being religious makes people happier. It gives them a sense of purpose. They meet congregations. It gives them a social life. It gives them a support system. So religion provided it doesn't provoke it. Other religions is definitely a force for the good. But when we think of somebody who has a particular religion, it's more than a theological um, divergence of opinion. You believe in Allah, I believe in Jehovah, somebody believes in Jesus Christ. It's more than that. <laughs> Behind religion lies a lot of cultural assumptions. So when, for example, Hindus are anti-Muslim in India, it is more than we believe in a certain set of gods and Muslims believe in Allah. It's more than that. It is the whole cultural way of how Muslims lead their lives and how we as Hindus live our lives. And with being anti-Muslim expresses um, a hostility, not just to the religion, but to the entire cultural package, hinterland, if you like, which 
lies behind that religion. So it is very easy to become intolerant because you're not just voicing discontent against Allah, you're voicing discontent against everything that Muslims, the, the way they live their lives, the whole, the whole package is okay. something that... Yes, and, and against them it feels. Uh, we can see that... Against in, them. Yes, against yeah. them as people. Yeah. Yes. We can see yes. that... And, I just think Hindus and Muslims, you know, Muslims can equally feel the same way against Christians. So, you know, I'm not Muslims against Jews, the Buddhists against uh, Muslims. So it is, you know, one tribe, one religious tribe that is most visceral and fundamental against another religious tribe. Yes. And what I th thought was so fascinating about your book is that you point out that no matter what you do, even if, let's say, let's take the example of a devout Muslim may find tremendous joy and happiness in their own uh, appreciation of their religion, that doesn't mean that they won't also experience very high degrees of negative uh, experiences related to being that religion in their in their environment. If, for example, like, the, like what you just said, if they're in a part of India where perhaps there's a lot of anti-Muslim uh, feeling and, and even violence. Um, and the same could be said here in the United States, certainly um, between different religions here. We, we have exactly the same phenomenon. I think it's true of, of groups in any environment when the, when the feeling of one group becomes uh, negative towards the other, it can make it very difficult for those people, even if they are just being observant, just finding their own joy and their own happiness. Um, they can actually find very little of that if they're in an environment where that's not, um, I would say, not just tolerated, but um, but allowed to to happen and and even encouraged. Like toleration, like you were pointing out before, it, it implies a negative, and and even if someone is allowed to perform their religion, they might still find that there are negative impacts of being public about that. Um, I know yeah, after yeah, the absolutely. yeah after the the October um, violence in Israel, many Jews did not want to put their menorah in the window for Hanukkah uh, because they were afraid because it made public what what was private, and I'm sure there are similar things for Muslims. Yeah, um, and I'm so, level for example, yeah. um, public prayers which Muslims offer five times a day used to be tolerated in India, and you know, you might not like it, but that's what they do, that's what they do, you know, people are accepted. It's no longer acceptable now. Um, and Muslims are afraid to pray in public because they might be prevented from doing so, either violently or verbally, verbal violence, by the fact that these Constraints of behavior had now been eroded, and it's perfectly acceptable to take umbrage at this uh, kind of behavior. For a Hindu to take umbrage at a Muslim expression, it's quite, a, quite, quite acceptable. Yes, oh, it's quite acceptable. Well, perhaps that puts into perspective some of the recent news about, and this isn't about your book, we're just going to go a little off, but um, the recent news about the, um, the Hindu temple that's been erected in India, um, there was a lot of uh, news about it because it, it was on the on the land that used to be a Muslim um, a Muslim holy place, 
and then a Hindu temple was placed on top of it. Do you see that as an example of a sort of physical manifestation of this underlying? Well, there's a vicious circle here because the Muslim mosque, which was erected 500 years ago, was built by destroying a Hindu temple and the mosque was built there. So in many ways, people feel that they're not operating in a vacuum when they build this temple and destroy the mosque, but they are finding revenge. And in revenge, people find solace, you know, that, you know, we've got our own back. And there's a lot of um, sort of vicious cycle of violence. You did something to me, and now I'm going to do the same to you. And uh, I didn't complain about it then, or you used for against me then. So just accept the fact that I'll accept use force against you now. So I can see that argument very clearly that um, Hindus feel we've been ruled by Muslims for centuries. We were subservient to them, and now it's our turn. I see. And it's it's particularly fascinating that it's over such a long period of time. I think for, for, for many Americans, these long, uh, these long historical sort of battles become sort of flattened in our memories, in our collective memories. Um, but it's it's very similar to what's going on in Israel, just to use that example again, in that there's this back and forth over over very long periods of time, many hundreds of years. And yet it's affecting the not just the lives, um, but also the the ability to exist and to find any kind of happiness um, on on both sides, really. Um, Many, but in this particular case, this mosque that was demolished was not built on any old site. It was built on one of the most sacred sites that Hindus regard, which is the birthplace of their principal deity, Ram. So it is almost as though, you know, Temple Mount was destroyed and something else was constructed or in Rome was pulled down and you know, a mosque was built there. Yes, so, I think that might help some of our audience understand the emotions behind that um, yeah, building. Yeah, the emotion behind this is considerable because it was not any old mosque. It was a mosque built on a particular piece of ground, which Hindus regard as one of the most sacred pieces of ground. I see. And of course, 500 years ago, when Muslims were asserting their supremacy, they chose sacred places, of places that for Hindus were sacred. And it was precisely those places, in those places, that temples were destroyed and mosques were built. It was a very provocative act. Yes, and a certain power. It like. is provocative then 500 days ago when they had the upper hand. And it is provocative today when Indians feel they need redress for these wrongs. Hindus feel that they need redress for these wrongs. Yes. Um, I want to come back to the book. Uh, although I do find this really fascinating. Um, I want to come back to the book just to make sure that we uh, cover it uh, in its entirety or in its fullness. Um, I want to talk about another factor of happiness that you spent some time on in the book that I found really interesting in, in a, you know, maybe a less emotional way, but in a very concrete way because it really affects everybody, um, which is the effect of income and job satisfaction on happiness. 
Um, and one of the things that I think is very common, at least in, in the U.S., we believe that more income equals more happiness, full stop. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what you found was something a little bit different. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about how what you learned about what different levels of income, how that corresponds to levels of happiness. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> what I found was I worked on hypothesis, which was nothing original. It was, it's a very well-known hypothesis by a very well-known economist, Easterlin. And basically it argues that if you get an increase in income, you get satisfaction from two sources. First, higher income, you can buy more, better house, bigger car, school fees, etc. So that's the consumption effect. But also, if you get more income, you're better off than your neighbor. You're better off than your peers. And this increase in social status, so increase in, if you like, the income divide between you and the less fortunate, that also is the source of satisfaction. And therefore, if everybody gets the same rise in income, so over time, a country becomes richer, you don't see a very great increase in happiness because all the happiness is coming through increased consumption and there is no happiness coming from increased social status because relativities have remained the same. But if you look at one point in time, you will find that yes, higher income does give higher sense of happiness because you're not just able to buy more things, but you're also able to uh, show that there's a gap between you and the person living next door. I think that that's so fascinating because it explains, at least in my opinion, it explains a little bit more why there's never enough, uh, why there's this idea that you always need more, that that there's no actual level that, that anyone can get to that's like, that's enough. You know, it's because you have this other need to be having more and more distance um, between other people. So they have to do worse if you're going to stay the same. You can't just be happy with your with what you have. I, I think that's a really powerful analysis and something that we don't talk about, although I think most people would recognize the truth of it. Um, I... I I wonder if you've had a reaction to that from the book. I haven't, but I make this point that when we talk about comparisons between, let's say, you and me or me and somebody else, I don't know your precise financial circumstances, but I can see your visible financial circumstances. I can see the car parked outside your house. I can see the size of your house. I can see whether your children go to a fee-paying school or to a public school. So these are all um, visible signs of your either affluence or lack of affluence. And very often we seize upon these visible signs. It is, I want a better car. I want a bigger house. I want my children to go to a private university or to a private fee-paying college, school. Because we don't have precise to know what the details of that person's financial circumstances might be. They may have borrowed themselves to the ilt in order to buy that car and the house and the fees or whatever. 
One thing we do know, and this is also an important part of the book, we do know how our parents lived. And if I feel that I'm doing better today than my parents did when they were of a comparable age, then the same amount of income in dollars would make me more happy than that same amount of income if I felt that my parents were better off when they were my age. So doing better than your parents is a very important ingredient of uh, financial happiness. I feel like we need to come up with a name for that. Like we say, keeping up with the Joneses is that is that expression about how you look to your neighbors, for example, your house, your car, your school. And then this thing about your parents, I feel like we need a name to say, I'm doing better than my than my parents did. Therefore, the I'm... Oh, yes. <laughs> the mom and dad effect, yes. yes. <laughs> the mom delta or the dad delta, something like that. Um, so I, I want to also ask you about a chapter that I... I did not expect as I was reading the book, I came when I came to the chapter on prejudice, um, I found that really fascinating. And you dedicated an entire chapter to it. So tell us about what you learned about prejudice and the impact on okay. happiness. So the theme of this book is externalities. Other people impose constraints on your happiness. One very obvious is religion, that People disapprove of your religion, and for a while they tolerate it. But when the front gates burst, they are prepared to be violent against you. But it's not just tolerance about religion or intolerance about religion. People may be intolerant about your skin color, your social, your sexual orientation, and where you came from. So these are the three aspects that I look at you know, racism, <clears throat> the homophobia, and being immigrant phobia. But it's the same principle, which is that I tolerate you, even though you're of a different race, you're a homosexual, or, you know, you're an immigrant, I tolerate you. But there comes a point, although I don't, so I disapprove of this, but I still better put up with it. But there comes a point when social mores change and, you know, some form of racism is okay. It's okay to be homophobic. It's okay to be transphobic. It's okay to be anti-immigrant. And once that happens, as for example, it's happening in Ireland at the moment. There is, Ireland was very tolerant about immigrants. They took a lot of immigrants imitated to the German market. But suddenly now things have turned. And what has turned is the housing shortage. There are no people in Ireland for the native population. Rents are astronomically high. House prices are so high nobody can afford. Houses are big houses or whatever. And suddenly it becomes all right to be anti-immigrant. And people now would... Uh, you know, gather outside hotels and protest and raise uh, placards uh, indicating that immigrants are no longer welcome. Whereas earlier, before there was a housing shortage, they would have accepted it even though they didn't like it. But now they neither like it and they are prepared to do something about it. 
Yes. Now, what's, um, we have an expression called microaggressions. And while I was reading this, I, I don't remember if you use that term or not. I don't think so. But I kept thinking about it. I kept thinking microaggressions are when we can see in small ways that underlying lack of tolerance. We can see the disapproval come through. It doesn't have to be actually aggressive. It just is an ex it's it's the the physical. It can be an expression on your face or a word, or a even a pause in the way you're talking that lets the other person know that you're not happy about something. Um, and I think that's what you're you're getting at. And we we have started to become more aware of these microaggressions. Um, but I think what you're saying is, is much more forceful. You're saying they're not micro anymore. They're just becoming aggressive. <laughs> yes, but I agree completely about your point about microaggression, you know, rolling your eyes when somebody says something, or looking at your mobile phone while somebody is speaking, or raising your eyebrows, or whatever, you know, or... You know, these are microaggressions. And now, in fact, there are training courses in Britain to teach people how not to be microaggressive. <laughs> and they, they find a whole list of things which they would deem as microaggressive, you know, rolling your eyes, raising your eyebrows, uh, looking out the window when somebody's speaking, interrupting somebody, whatever, you know. These, yeah, yeah. Those are so, just the... Those are just the outward expressions of a feeling that is there, whether you feel comfortable expressing it or or not. And it, it would be wonderful if people didn't express it, um, but it would be more wonderful if they didn't feel it. Um, and I, I'm not sure that we have much control over that. Um, but I did find your book very helpful to understand what's going on under the covers for people um, as they're managing this. And most of the book are talking about the happiness of people who are the targets of that, uh, of that aggression, of that lack of tolerance. Um, but I feel like there's also a sense in which you're, you're also speaking of the happiness of the people on the other point, side. I think, sorry. I can say, no, go A point that I make is that people are very oversensitive sometimes to what their neighbors think. So, for example, there's a question. Would you like to have this particular group as your neighbor? So let's say homosexual. Would you like to have a homosexual as your neighbor? And a lot of people would say, no, we don't want a homosexual as your neighbor. And then you can ask a supplementary question. But do you have anything against homosexual? Do you object? Oh, we have nothing against homosexual, but we don't want them as a neighbor. Why? Because what would our neighbors say? who object to homosexuality, what would our neighbors say if we had a homosexual as a neighbor? We'd have to live with these people. And it's much more important for us to live with these people than um, to stretch the social fabric by having homosexuals as our neighbors. So, you know, this is part of the analysis. So the important point is not just what I think, but it is what I think my neighbor or the majority of my neighbors think. And this is the standard response given, let's say, <laughs> I don't want to rent my house to you. 
Are you a racist? No, 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 I'm not a racist at all. But, you know, my neighbors are racist and they wouldn't like it and I've got to live with them. So if you forgive me, I won't rent my house to you. Yes, as so you there's say. there's a lot of that in Sorry. Yes, as, as you said, hell is other people. <laughs> hell is other people, yes. Hell is other people. Yes. Um, so I think we're getting almost to the end of our time. Um, I'd like to, I have two last questions. Um, the first one is about just what for the people I'm, I'm, I'm recommending that all of our listeners go out and buy your book and read it. Um, but as they think about that, what's the one thing that you hope that people will take away from this interview and from the book itself? I just like to give you a chance to communicate kind of the, the core of what you hope people will take from your book. Okay. So the message that I would like to convey is that most people speak of tolerance approvingly, but what they don't recognize underlying tolerance is a basic disapproval of what somebody is doing. And tolerance lies in not doing anything about it. Now, the second factor, not doing anything about it, can be very easily eroded. And it can be eroded in a number of ways, which I enumerate in my book. So the main point that I'd like to make is not disapprove of something and not do anything about it, but not disapprove at all. You know, to not have any views. You go to a mosque, you're of a different color. It doesn't really, I, it's a matter of indifference to me rather than a matter of positive dislike, which I subsume and control and constrain. It's a very uh, inspiring message. I, I think it would be uh, an amazing world if people could it would live be, their I mean, lives. Completely <laughs> idealistic message, yes. Yeah. But tolerance should not get the kudos or the prizes that it often gets. You know, it, um, It's not a big deal to be tolerant. Yes. And in fact, it can be quite negative because what it does is it just it just sort of quiets the negative without actually doing anything to alleviate the negative. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. And so thank you so much. I, uh, I appreciate the sort of the, the, the um, precise summary. And my last question for you today, before we let you go, is that we are always looking for new books to read. So I wonder if there's one that you'd like to share with our audience today. Well, one particular book, which is very much on the theme of what I'm speaking is, you know, a lot of the book is concerned with the intolerance of religion. And there's a book called Slaughter Among Neighbors, if I can show it to you, Slaughter Among Neighbors. And it's a book by Human Rights Watch. And in my book, I discuss a number of cases, but I discuss the Indian case in great detail. But the Indian case is by no means an isolated case. These cases litter the international landscape. And what this book does is it details these cases. And it shows us that religious violence based on intolerance of regarding the other religion as not just a theological curiosity, but as conveying some cultural type which is hostile to our cultural type. You know, these issues 
are very widespread. Fascinating. Well, I will go out and get that book, and I hope our our listeners will as well. I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Professor Vani Kanparua, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. It has been a huge pleasure discussing your book, Economics, Religion, and Happiness. Thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Megan, for having me. Thank you.